This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the effective management of type 2 diabetes with endocrinologist Dr. Christine Ibrahim. We'll learn about suffering with eczema, psoriasis, and dermatitis with natural beauty expert V Mystery. We'll talk about which fitness trends are worth pursuing with fitness expert Stacey Irvine. And lastly, we'll find out whether oxalates in your food are making you sleepy with nutrition expert Sally Norton. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Doctors at three English hospitals have led research using a new type of CT scan to light up tiny nodules in a hormone gland and cure high blood pressure by their removal. The nodules are discovered in 1 in 20 people with high blood pressure. The research solves a 60-year-old problem of how to detect the hormone-producing nodules without a difficult catheter study that is available only in a handful of hospitals and often fails. The research also found that when combined with a urine test, the scan detects a group of patients who come off all of their blood pressure medicines after treatment. Scientists at Leeds University have figured out why eating chocolate feels so good. They've decoded the physical process that takes place in the mouth when a piece of chocolate is eaten, as it changes from a solid to a smooth emulsion that many people find totally irresistible. By analyzing each of the steps, the interdisciplinary research team hopes that it will lead to the development of a new generation of luxury chocolates that will have the same feel and texture but will be healthier to consume. During the moments it is in the mouth, the chocolate sensation arises from the way the chocolate is lubricated, either from ingredients in the chocolate itself or from saliva or a combination of the two. Fat plays a key function and almost immediately when a piece of chocolate is in contact with the tongue. After that, solid cocoa particles are released and they become important in terms of the tactile sensation, so fat deeper inside the chocolate plays a rather limited role and could be reduced without having impact on the feel or sensation of chocolate. Mounting evidence suggests that prolonged sitting, a staple of modern day life, is hazardous to your health even if you exercise regularly. Based on these findings, doctors advise all adults to sit less and move more. But how often do we need to get up from our chairs? And for how long? Few studies have compared multiple options to come up with the answer most office workers want. What is the least amount of activity needed to counteract the health impact of a workday filled with sitting? Now, a study by Columbia University exercise physiologists has an answer. Just five minutes of walking every half hour during the periods of prolonged sitting can offset most of the harmful effects. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Dr. Christine Ibrahim in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. If you have type 2 diabetes, it might be time for a heart-to-heart with your own heart. There's no sugarcoating it. Type 2 diabetes affects more than just your blood sugar levels. It can impact other parts of your body, including your heart. If you have diabetes and a history of heart disease, there are medications, along with diet and exercise, that can lower your risk from dying from problems relating to your heart and blood vessels. 
Talk to your doctor today and visit myheartmatters.ca to learn more. Brought to you by two of Canada's leading pharmaceutical research-based companies. According to our federal government, diabetes is one of the most common chronic diseases affecting Canadians. By its estimates, over 3 million Canadians, or almost 10% of the population, have been diagnosed with diabetes, and after adjusting for our aging population over time, the prevalence has been increasing at an average rate of 3.3% per year. In addition, over 6% of Canadian adults have prediabetes, putting them at high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I'm joined by diabetes expert Dr. Christine Ibrahim, an endocrinologist at Scarborough Health Network. Dr. Ibrahim will share some insights and tips for effective type 2 diabetes management, the most prevalent form of diabetes impacting 90% of Canadians living with the disease. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So I think what's interesting is that a lot of people don't realize that diabetes, which is a scary drug and leads potentially to all kinds of bad health outcomes in and of itself, is actually quite manageable through lifestyle and medications, right? Yes, that's correct. But there's a difference between type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes. Can you explain that? Uh, Yeah, sure. So at a fundamental level, diabetes is a condition where you have an imbalance with the glucose or blood sugars in your body, as well as the insulin level in your body. So it's easiest to think of this as a seesaw where you have, you know, glucose on one side and insulin on the other. For actually everyday individuals, you get constant up and down between sugar and insulin. In those who don't have diabetes, it often levels up, balances out. But in those who have diabetes, you have an imbalance where the sugars are higher relative to the insulin. Now, when we talk about blood sugars in the body, this comes from what we call an exogenous causes or what we eat, as mm-hmm. well as endogenous causes, which is what the body makes. And from insulin, it comes from the beta cells in the pancreas. So when it comes to type 1 diabetes, this happens when the body can't make the insulin to combat these high sugars. So those beta cells in the pancreas that I mentioned, they either don't work or there's antibodies that affect their production. So this is what we call insulin-deficient diabetes. And for type 2 diabetes, which is the much more prevalent type, this happens when you do have insulin production. Your pancreas is actually on high drive, overproducing insulin, but the insulin it's producing is ineffective. So it's what we call insulin-resistant diabetes. Now, both conditions have fluctuation of blood sugars, but when it comes to type 1, currently the only therapy we have available is insulin, which we consider life-sustaining therapy for these individuals. Whereas type 2, as you mentioned, can be managed with medications, lifestyle, insulin, or a combination of those. Okay, so there. I know based on interviews that I've done before on the show, there's a correlation between the development of type 2 diabetes and age. Why is that? Right, so that's a good question. That's actually a little bit of a complicated question. So historically and statistically, we say that the risk of diabetes increases as you get older, but this is changing and it may not actually continue to be the case. So the physiologic idea is, The longer you have your body, it goes through your daily ups and downs, wear and tear. You know, as you get older, you say, ah, my my bones hurt, my joints hurt, that sort of thing. Well, that same thing is happening on the inside. So we see that in the pancreas, the beta cells that I mentioned start to, you know, stave off with time or become less effective. And so this can lead to a progression of diabetes as you get older. 
But there are many other factors that we're seeing are at play now, and really we're having to take a second look or a second glance at this. For instance, genetics plays a much stronger role, particularly when we talk about type 2. So we now say if you have one parent who has diabetes, you can have upwards of a 50% chance. If you have two, that can be upwards of 99. Wow. Now, we also know, yeah, which is, which is pretty significant when you look at that. And we also know that epigenetics plays a role. So certain ethnic groups have a higher propensity of developing diabetes. So First Nations, Middle Eastern, South Asians, to name a few. And there's really not as much of an age limit with that. We're finding that this needle is shifting. People are being diagnosed earlier and earlier in life. And we've got other complicating factors. So, you know, right now it's a very hot button topic to talk about the obesity epidemic, for instance. This is not just exactly, and I know that you've definitely mentioned this on your show before, but this is not just with adults. We're seeing this with children. So we're actually finding more and more that we're diagnosing children with type 2 diabetes. So it's actually fairly significant. That's why those stats you've mentioned are so high for Canadians having diabetes or even risk of prediabetes. And so really the needle is changing, which is really bringing this more to the forefront for us to say, okay, let's put a focus not just on managing diabetes when it's diagnosed, but working on preventative health and trying to even prevent it from getting there. Okay. I I do want to talk about some of the maintenance issues that we can do, but before we get there, I think it's important that we also stress the collateral health impacts of having type 2 diabetes if you're not managing it, because they're pretty significant. Yeah, no, definitely. So when we're in our medical training, from a medical standpoint, we often break this off into something called microvascular and macrovascular effects. So microvascular is basically organs that have small vessels. So in individuals who have poorly controlled diabetes, this can lead specifically to the eyes, uh, which can cause bleeding or, at the worst case, risk of blindness. The kidneys, which can cause damage to the kidney function, worst case leading to dialysis. Uh, Damage to the nerves that can affect sensation in the hands and feet increased risk of developing wounds. And then you have these macrovascular effects, which are organs that have larger vessels. And this specifically relates to the heart, So you have an increased risk of heart failure and heart attack and heart disease. We actually find that individuals with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes have at least a four-fold risk compared to the general population of having a heart attack, which is fairly significant. And there's also an increased risk of stroke. Now, beyond this, we're still learning more and more about this complex condition, and we're seeing other areas of impact. So increased risk of dementia, increased risk of cancer, effects to mental health, and then other related complications such as obesity. So that's why we really, again, want to bring this information forward. We want to look at preventative health when the risks are there. We want to look at managing diabetes once it's diagnosed early and aggressively. And we know from literature that's looked at a huge amount of patients over many years, the more you deal with this earlier, the more you try to deal with this more aggressively, you can significantly reduce these risks particularly those microvascular complications. So those impacts to the eyes, the kidneys, and the nerves. So uh, before we move on to some of the collateral issues surrounding diabetes, specifically, what are the things that somebody can do with type 2 diabetes that will help manage all these negative impacts? So there's many, many things that can be done. So first off, it's recognizing it 
and accepting it actually. So acknowledging that this is something that you have, but this is something that is definitely manageable that you can really make changes to your lifestyle, work with your healthcare provider, work with your family and friends and get this under control. And then it's about making those uh, changes. So working on healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, exercise, best you can, having medications, monitoring your blood sugars. And really, I know I'm talking about all of these things that can affect one's health with diabetes, but we're also at an incredible stage, an advancement in science and technology where there are devices that can monitor your blood sugars and medications that can have such benefit beyond simply just lowering one's blood sugar. You know, obviously there's sort of a national connection to the treatment of diabetes because insulin was developed and discovered in Canada. What are some of the benefits of long-acting basal insulin? Like what is that and, and what are the benefits? So first I want to just kind of take a note and pause that development of insulin is a Canadian discovery. It's a Canadian success story. So we just recently celebrated 100 years, as you mentioned, which is fantastic. And we've definitely come a long way. Previously, individuals who had type 1 diabetes who could not get access to insulin would, other than being on a very low carb or a starvation diet, had no other out and oftentimes passed away at a young age, which is very unfortunate. But with this discovery and various different iterations, we've definitely come a long way and insulin has saved so many lives. Now, when we talk about insulin, we often talk about short acting, which helps the mealtime sugars and long-acting insulin or basal insulin. And what the long-acting insulin does is it helps reduce your overall average of your blood sugars. So this happens during the day. So say you, you know, overeat or mealtime medications or mealtime insulin is not effective. You've got the long-acting insulin in the background to help assist. And then as you sleep at night, there's many times sugars can go up, go sky high, and this long acting helps keep it at bay. And so by doing this, it effectively helps level out your sugars, improves your overall numbers. This improves your overall control and reduces that risk of complications. And with these newer long acting insulins, they've got a nice flatter profile. They have a safer way of doing that and reducing the overall risk of low blood sugars or hypoglycemia. So I gather with these longer insulins, basically what's happening is it's kind of smoothing out the highs and lows over the day. Is that the way it works or am I missing the mark? So it, no, 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 not at all. So it helps smooth out the sugars throughout the day uh, in the sense of it helps reduce that overall average. So if you're sitting with your sugars at a higher set point and you take the long acting insulin, it brings that down. Now, what I mean by some of the lows that you get is previous generations of longer acting insulin couldn't last the full 24 hours. Right. And so as they wore off, they had this taper effect. And so sometimes individuals would have this acute drop in their blood sugar. But with these longer ones, it's got a much flatter profile. So it actually limits that drop. So you can safely use it, safely increase and titrate it up without having as much of those risks. What is time and range and why is it important in supporting well-controlled type 2 diabetes? That is an excellent question. So historically, we used to, and I would say we often still do, use a metric, which is a blood test called a hemoglobin A1C. And what this looks at, it looks at one's sugars over a three-month period, and it gives you a set percentage. And for the average adult who has diabetes, we try to aim for an A1C 
7% or less. Now, we find that there's sometimes issues with the A1C. It can be affected by someone's hemoglobin level. So if an individual has kidney disease or anemia or low iron or other causes, this number can be inaccurate. So this has really brought forward this idea of time and range, which is having your blood sugars during the day around 4 to 10. This has gone even forward with having sensor-based technology, which is basically a device that you wear on your body that helps monitor your sugars all day, every day. And so with that, we've come up with this concept called the time and range. Now, for this and for sensors, we looked at a range of blood sugars between 3.9 to 10. We try to aim for that to be 70% of the time or more. Why we specifically aim for that is that correlates to having an A1C of around 7%. We try to aim for a number below target or less than 4 to be less than 4% of the time or as low as possible. Now, why this is important, why we're such sticklers to keep numbers around this range, is because we know that this relates to control of your blood sugars and therefore relates to a reduction of complications, specifically, as mentioned, that microvascular complications. So protection to those eyes, kidneys, nerves, and other complications as well. So really going forward, there is going to be more and more of a focus on time and range and having these certain metrics in place for individuals who are trying to actively manage their diabetes. Great. So we have time for one last question, and that is, you know, with your busy practice as an endocrinologist, what are three common issues or needs that you see associated with type 2 diabetes? I wish I could uh, stick with only three, but there's many things. Obviously, you know, this is a chronic condition. There's so many levels of complexity. It's really what we call a biopsychosocial effect. So, you know, there's the, the science of the biology, there's the psychology, the mental health, and there's the social, financial, economic impacts of diabetes. And so it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing uh, to look at and to manage. Uh, there's actually been some surveys done given to physicians in 2019, uh, one called the DM Action and the DM Impact, where they looked to see what they found the barriers were. And I would tend to agree with their most common ones. And so specifically, this would be non-adherence, to both lifestyle and medications. Yep. So that's trouble from a clinician standpoint. And then the second would be medication costs, yep. pill burdens for patients and side effects. I would tag those together as patient-related uh, troubles. And then the third would be general health, financial literacy and access. So just the knowledge and the costs and the resources that are available. These would be three pretty big categories, but those would be some of the main impacts. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the beauty treatment of skin conditions on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. V Mystery is a certified skin therapist and founder of Skin by V, a private facial studio in Toronto that specializes in awakening the skin through personalized and science-backed treatments. 
Skin by V also sells a selection of curated luxury skincare products, both online and in store. With more than 25 years of experience in the beauty industry, V has worked on thousands of faces and developed a highly tailored approach to the art of facials. Welcome back to the show, V. How are you? I'm very good, Jamie. How are you doing? Pretty good, actually. Not bad at all. Yeah? Yeah, yeah good. Are we still saying Happy New Year, right? We are. This is the first yeah. time we've spoken in the New Year, so yes, we are. Yes. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the etiquette. Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> today we're going to talk about skin conditions and how they correlate with beauty products. Okay? Does that make sense? Correct. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Can skin conditions be caused by your beauty products? They can. If a specific skin product, maybe from an ingredient standpoint, is not correct for the actual uh, consumer using it, then yeah, it can definitely create some type of reaction in a negative way. So yeah. Are there like ingredients that you come across regularly that, you know, for some people are, are an issue? Yeah. So I find sometimes customers and clients will struggle a little bit more with fragrances. Fragrance is really interesting because it doesn't always refer to a perfume per se, but because it has the word fragrance in it, they think it is linked to, you know, a perfume, but fragrance could just be the natural smell that a certain ingredient has. But sometimes if there is a lot of essential oils in something, some clients, customers may find that too overpowering. It may be too much on their skin, and that could also potentially make them feel a little bit more reactive or sensitized to that product. So what are the types of reactions that you can expect? expect to get from a beauty product if it doesn't agree with you? Like, is, is that like contact dermatitis or is that something else? Yeah, I, I love the fact that you brought up contact dermatitis, actually, because contact dermatitis is something where if a substance and a substance could be a fragrance, a chemical, so a certain type of acid that might be too strong for somebody within a product, a pollution, um, allergens, irritants, jewelry even, all of these things can create an onset, which is contact dermatitis, so an allergic reaction to something. And sometimes what can happen is they may find that um, the skin may almost look like it has a rash on it. Yeah. Um, it can be very red. Um, it can be very itchy. And yeah, like you've almost got tiny like little bumps in, in small patches. Sometimes if you put Specifically, from a product standpoint, if you put a, an ingredient on the skin, it can make the eye area swell up. It can look red. It can give people like little patches on their face almost. Again, very itchy, very dry, very irritated. Are there any products that could help with contact dermatitis? Yeah, so if somebody has struggled with any type of contact dermatitis, they didn't know they were allergic to something, I always say pair back. So, you know, anywhere between two to four weeks, give that skin that proper healing recovery time. So choose something which is a more gentle cleanser. Um, a micellar water is really good, just a cleansing oil or a cleansing balm. And then going heavy on your occlusive, so your, your moisturizer should 
be a beautiful emollient to really kind of seal in that hydration. Because when you have come across this type of uh, contact dermatitis, your skin barrier may have been compromised. So you're losing lipids, you're losing the waters. So a nice emollient, nice occlusive will just help lock and seal all that in. And this will give the skin enough time to really heal and repair again. Now, after two to four weeks, if you don't see that the skin is healing and repairing, then I would recommend that you go and see um, like your your medical profession, so your doctor, your GP, um, and then see what they say. I actually got contact dermatitis on my ring finger from the wedding ring that I used to wear to the point where I couldn't wear it anymore. Like it did no, no, like I would take it off and the skin would heal and then I'd put it back on and it was the same issue. So I actually don't wear any jewelry, no watches, no, no anything anymore. Did you find that just happen over time? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I've been married a long time and for many years it was not an issue. And then all of a sudden it became an issue and I thought, okay, well, you know, yeah. I, I'm not making a personal statement. My wife knows that I love yeah. her, but you know, <laughs> I can't wear the ring anymore. So there you but go. That's something to also think about is as we age, our body will change. And so sometimes to this point, um, clearly is that you may not have had a more reactive or more sensitized reaction to something when we were younger. But as we age, our body will change, our needs change. And sometimes, you know, your immune system, your response will also change in that way. What's interesting is our our next topic is eczema. So I used to have very bad eczema when I was younger, and now it is much better. But I'm sure you have clients who have eczema as well, right? Yeah, so eczema is something. So what it will look like in terms of eczema is you're going to have dry, itchy, inflamed patches. This can be anywhere like on the face or the body. It can flare up, so it can come from time to time. The most challenging part of eczema is that there's no one trigger for one person. It can be a variety of different things. Um Eczema typically will be seen to be, you know, kind of a starting point in children sort of five years and up, but it's not limited to just children. It can be something that as we age, we may start experiencing it. I'm going to give you a little bit of my example. I'm a mother of three. When I had my youngest, um, she's 17 now, so a little while back, well, uh, quite a while back, um, when I had her within the first, um, I would say, six to eight weeks, I also have eczema and it flared up so bad that I literally got these patches all over my face, all over my body. Mm. Um, and they were like purple and really itchy. And when I went to the doctor, you know, she basically was like, it's eczema and it could just be your hormones. Yep. So there is no trigger. And yeah, eczema is, it's pretty uncomfortable when you do have it. And again, it's going to weaken the skin barrier. So to be as gentle as possible in terms of your products is definitely the key here. For me, it was triggers, changes of, of temperature, or mm. or if I was in the water a lot. Like when I was young, I used to teach swimming and sailing. So if I was in mm. and out of the water a lot and dry off and then get back in and dry off, that would trigger it sometimes. So what can we do? Are there products that can help? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of water, if you do have a flare-up, I would say try and keep your water limited. So 
try not to have baths, have a little bit more of a quicker shower. And the temperature of the water in there should be, you know, lukewarm. Um, The heat will feel really good, but it can heighten that inflammation. Remember, eczema is a type of inflammation. I would say keeping your products on those areas really gentle. So, again, look for, you know, creamy cleansers, oil cleansers, Nothing which has any types of acid. So steer away from salicylic, glycolic, you know, any type of even enzymes. Like try to avoid all of that when you've had a flare up. What you should be concentrating on is, again, healing. So look for richer, heavier moisturizers that really kind of give you that beautiful emollient occlusive to the skin. And again, it's going to seal in any of those lipids. So to make sure that we're not losing that water from the skin. Terrific. I have no experience with the next topic, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people do, and that's psoriasis. Yeah. So psoriasis, sometimes eczema and psoriasis, people can get that muddled up because they can't understand the differences. So psoriasis will still look red, inflamed. It can still be itchy. But the differentiator here is the thickness. So in those patches, you're going to almost notice like silvery, scaly patches. Sometimes it will crack. It will bleed. Again, it can be very itchy and it can be very painful. Typically, psoriasis, you'll notice that it will appear in your scalp, elbows, knees, lower back, but it's not limited to those areas. But those are more of like the common areas that you will see it coming up. What do you recommend with respect to the products? Yeah, product-wise, I would treat it very similar to eczema, you know, keeping everything very gentle, keeping everything very cool and looking for emollient. The one thing to remember is both eczema and psoriasis, sometimes it is at its heightened flare-up. And so the only thing that we can do is go to a doctor and typically they're going to prescribe you a steroid-based cortisone cream. And that's basically going to really kind of exfoliate, like really encourage that exfoliation. So thinning out the psoriasis. And for the eczema, it's going to heal and repair the skin quicker. The only thing with these steroid-based products is that your skin will be a little bit more sun sensitive. So regardless of whether you're using this steroid cream on your face or your body, always make sure you're using an SPF to make sure that you don't get pigmentated. And pigmentation will look like a slightly darker tone in those areas that you've used those steroid-based products. Fantastic advice. What would you like to talk about the next time you come on the show? Well, I think something that would be really great is how our gut health affects our skin because most people think if you just throw a product on it it's going to correct your skin condition but we actually have to take a more deeper look into what's going on internally and that will help optimize what we're trying to achieve on a surface level fantastic we have to take a short break but we'll be right back on the tonic i'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor omega alpha this company is 100 percent canadian owned Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. 
For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Stacey Irvine, D.C., is the co-founder of Totem Life Science. The philosophy and identity of Totem have been greatly influenced by Stacey's love of athletics and her passionate belief that everyone will benefit from a healthy, active lifestyle in their own unique way. Through her work as a chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Dr. Irvine's clientele ranges from beginners just starting out on an exercise program to elite and professional athletes looking for advanced rehabilitation and training program strategies. She's a frequent guest on the show. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be here. So you're on the show today to talk about fitness and wellness trends because I can't do it myself because I'm a stodgy MF and I don't I don't <laughs> change up anything ever. So, so boring. <laughs> so I need somebody, like honestly, somebody has a Jamie, you really have to look at this. This is really great. But when it comes to wellness... Are you more about the tried and true? Or are you all about the new and exciting? Absolutely. 100%. Although I will never admit to being stodgy. I am about the tried and true. Okay. I talk about it all the time. And even when I'm working with some very, very elite athletes, like right now I'm coaching uh, U of T high performance track and field athletes. I keep coming back to the basics and really trying to, not trying to bore these kids, but I can see their eyes glaze over as I talk to them about squats and cleans and bench yeah. and lunges and getting a good night's sleep and having good nutrition. And I talk about it endlessly. It doesn't mean I'm not very aware of the trends because of the work that I do. Even if I don't pursue the trends, they come to me. They come into my office. People are saying, I'm trying this new thing. I'm trying this new diet. So I have to be aware of them. And it's just part of working in this industry. But when things are being brought to your attention, how do you decide whether or not a particular trend is worth pursuing or whether you'd advocate for it? It's such an awesome question because if only everybody would ask me this question before they spent thousands of dollars on the latest trend is how do you decide? And, And that's why I'm so excited about what we're talking about today. Okay, I've got some rules. Number one, who's behind the trend? Is it a celebrity endorsement? Is it a big company? Or is it a scientist who has legitimately discovered something new about training? Okay, Mm -hmm. so obviously you can tell probably by how I said that, that the first two are things I don't give a lot of credence to. So celebrity endorsements mean absolutely nothing in the health and fitness world to me. Absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Celebrities lead a life that is completely different from yours and mine. They have chefs that work with them. They basically go from, you know, zero to 100, getting in shape for a movie or a show, and their life is not normal at that time. And then if you saw them during the time they weren't shooting, we work with lots of celebrities. They look very different. Of course. So when we then look at their endorsement and say, oh, well, you know, the Kardashians are doing this. I'm going to do that and I'm going to look like them. That is setting you up for a lot of failure and it's probably not going to work. And at the same time, when I hear people like that who have no education or training in health, fitness, anything like that, talking about it, I really just kind of like plug my ears and go, no, 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 I don't want to hear that, okay? Because it's a waste of my time. So those things will come to me and people will say, well, I'm trying this workout or I'm doing this thing. And so then what we have to do is we have to say, okay, 
how far is it removed from our tried and true techniques? Because lots of times a new trend is just a variation yeah. of something that we've already done. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if it's not very far removed and the person says to me, I'm loving it and it's working, fabulous. Okay. But if it's something like, let's say, raspberry ketone, you know, supplement that we won't mention who promoted it, but Uh there was a big lawsuit and that's very far removed. Like in through all of history, raspberry ketones have never been known for weight loss. So then I look at that. I'm like, that's total crap. Please don't spend your money on it and don't waste any more energy on it. So it really depends on where it's coming from. And then ultimately, we go to the science. So what's the motivation? And if the motivation seems like it's a good motivation, what's the science behind it? And then does the science make sense? That's how I generally will look at a trend. See, I'm such a skeptic. Like I've been watching the series Dope Sick, where like studies were manipulated to get people to believe that opioids were not addictive. So (laughs) even even, even when I hear about studies... I kind of really want to go to the source material if I'm so inclined, right? But I'm an an outlier when it comes to stuff like that. I just don't believe anybody because I'm a huge paranoid. But But it's worked for you. So I like that. I suppose. That being said, I mean, sometimes you need to try something new because if you do the same thing over and over again, number one, you get diminishing results. But number two, you can get bored of it. Even somebody like me, like I have to change things up eventually. I love that. So what have you heard about that piques your interest that you might think, has some legitimacy behind it. Okay, so one thing just on your previous point, going to the source now, so I'm old enough that when I was doing my, you know, degrees and studying and doing research, I had to actually go to a library. Library, yeah. I had to get coins for the photocopier just to yeah. show you how old I was and I had to copy the research article from you, you and me are the same vintage <laughs> I had to do that when I was in law school we were photocopying case law which is bizarre because right nobody, right so so today if I want to go to the source it takes me five minutes on Google right and that's fantastic so go to the source a hundred percent always go to the source if it's something that you're making a big decision about and you're going to make a change go to the source it won't take you that much time and even if you can't read science, look at the abstract. Okay. So I always encourage everyone to go to the source. You will learn something. Trends are fun to your point. It's something different. It's mixing things up. I always love to go try new classes, new techniques. You know, there's many things like Zumba was a trend from a few years ago. And I have to say Zumba got many women in particular who were not working out to come and work out because they marketed it as a dance workout. And really, that's lots of times these women, you didn't have to have special shoes. You didn't have to change. You could just show up somewhere and dance with your friends. How fantastic is that? That's a trend. I'm 100% behind it. I'm enjoying the cold immersion therapy trend right now. Yeah. So for those who don't know, what is it? (laughs) It's a little bit more out there for sure. So it is saying that if you immerse yourself for approximately two minutes in water that is very cold, you will reap many health benefits from this. Now, what I love about this trend is that the health benefits are real. It's a way for people to kind of get together and bond. So now we have places that have shown up where actually you go in and you all do the sauna together and you go into a cold plunge together and and you go back and forth. So it's become a social movement. In the previous year, last around, I think, early December, there were approximately 1,700 people went into Lake Ontario together and did a cold plunge. They listened to music. They, you know, did all kinds of other things. 
And it sounds crazy to most of us. And, and I looked at the videos and it was crazy, but it's a huge kind of media sensation. You know, they had these drones going over top of looking at it, but everyone enjoyed themselves. Nobody was hurt and there are benefits from it. So I think when you look at it that way, as opposed to going sitting at a bar drinking with your friends, doing something different like that can be really exhilarating and it can build resilience and it can also open you up to meeting new people. It can make you say, you know what, I don't need to sit and watch Netflix all the time. I can go out with the people. I can socialize a bit more, which let's face it, it's good for our health in many different ways. And so trends can kind of lead you to that, to a a new community, to a new way of maybe exercising or just a new way of socializing. And to me, that is a benefit, provided it doesn't cost you tons of money and it's not hurting you in any way. Did you jump in the water yet? I do it myself. Oh, you do do it? Believe it or not. Okay. Okay, But like I do the cheap version. So I've gone... Cold shower? Bath. So I've gone to these places and I looked at all the research. Huberman has a great podcast about it. And I said, okay, this is a benefit. And look, the athletes I work with, we've used it for years, sure. right? I'm sure you remember pictures of football players in sitting the in bath. the ice bath yeah. after. So it does work. And so I've been experimenting with it, but mine is so unsophisticated. I basically walk my dogs, get home, fill my tub up with cold water. I do not put ice in. That's too no, much work, too but much, it doesn't yeah. have to be that cold. And I go in and I time myself and I meditate a little bit and I do my affirmations. And my husband thinks I'm completely bonkers. He refuses to do it. But I'm finding it enjoyable and I am noticing some benefits from it. I haven't done it yet. I'm candidly, I'm worried about shrinkage. And uh, (laughs) I don't know. I hear you. But there is a trend that I find a lot of this stuff is cyclical, right? Yes, it is. So, you know, I remember when I was really young, when I was in law school, I would go to a gym and I'd work out on this like rowing machine that was essentially kind of like pistons. And yes. now, and now yes, the, the hydraulics, the yes. hydraulics. Yes. and of course it got better. I have a rowing machine that I love, but all of a sudden Peloton has come out with a new machine, which has all the bells and whistles. And now everybody's asking me about rowing and because the, they know because that I row because I yes. row. Right. Yes. And I think rowing is transformative. I don't need all the bells and whistles, but I'm totally cool with People going and getting the Peloton, which I'm sure is not cheap, if they're interested in rowing. But I would say, go row. Like, go yeah, see before before you splurge it. on a machine that is X dollars, whether you're getting, like, my the one that I use is still an expensive piece of equipment. Like, before you spend the money, go to a gym, try it out, see if it's for you, see if that's something that you would actually do week by week. And that's probably the best course of action. Yeah, it really is. And this is what we recommend to everyone who's considering making a big investment is you absolutely need to try it. How does it feel for you? How does it work for you? Do you enjoy it? That is the key with trends is that before you invest in anything and invest means time, you know, energy and money really do your homework and figure out is it something you're going to enjoy I love the idea of going to a gym and trying a piece of equipment before you invest because I'm going to say to you that is one trend that we see people get equipment and it's good for a few months and then you and pick then it up they, on Kijiji when yeah, they sell it right? and then you stop using it so that's a really common one and you want to be very careful about those types of investments no question thank you so much for coming on the show today it's been a pleasure for more information about Stacy, visit totem.ca we have to take a short break but when we return We'll discuss whether oxalates in your food are making you sleepy on The Tonic. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? 
New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover de-stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Sally K. Norton holds a nutrition degree from Cornell University and a master's degree in public health. Her path to becoming a leading expert on dietary oxalate includes a prior career working at major medical schools in medical education and public health research. Her personal healing experience inspired years of research that led to her forthcoming book, Toxic Superfoods, which is releasing in January of 2023 from Rodale Press and is available here and everywhere books are sold. As a leading expert on oxalates in food, Sally's work has been featured by podcasters, radio shows, and several online and print journals. And for more information, you can always visit sallyknorton.com. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm well. Thank you for having me. So oxalates, something we've never discussed on the show. Can you explain what they are and why they are so very bad? Well, oxalates are chemicals that are essentially ubiquitous and common in nature, and they have toxic effects on our cells. We eat oxalic acid, which is a major subtype of oxalates in our foods, and at least 10% of that is getting into our blood and into our tissues. And that becomes all kinds of problems for the body, including this crystallization process that can do things like cause kidney stones. And the more you eat of this oxalic acid, the more likely you're going to have harm in the body. So which are the foods that people are eating that have these oxalates in them? Nuts are really high in oxalates. Nuts and seeds, so almonds, cashews, and peanuts. Oh my God! Black my, my, beans and white beans. Those are some of my favorites. Oh no! <laughs> I know. Well, they're becoming everyone's favorites. They've gotten affordable, and they are everywhere. All the snack stuff is loaded with them. And people who are going on these gluten-free and dairy-free diets are using things like quinoa, buckwheat, taff, and these sort of non-gluten, newfangled things. They're all high in oxalate. Chia seeds have gotten crazy popular, and then there's turmeric. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Kiwi, blackberries, pomegranates, dark chocolate, and the worst of all is spinach, chard, and beet greens. You may have listed about 15 foods that I probably consume on a daily basis. Oh no, I'm concerned for you. (laughs) Okay, so all right. Now you have my attention, Sally. What are some of the signs that we may be having too many oxalates? I need to know. 
Yeah, you know, sometimes there's no symptoms at all. You know, it's happening under the hood. And uh, like so many problems, you can have a problem developing and have no symptoms. I mean, I've heard plenty of stories and statistically more than half of people who die of heart attacks have zero symptoms from their heart disease. So keep that in mind. But if after a meal, when you eat a ton of this stuff, like I used to love to have sweet potatoes every day, which is another one I probably didn't mention, and charred at least once a week. Yep. And by bedtime, I'd have them for dinner. And by bedtime, I was not well. I was starting to get these belching attacks and hiccup attacks. And those are signs of actually neurotoxicity. So it's one of the effects it has is it messes up how your nerves work. It can change your mood. It can make you irritable and impatient or worried or anxious or lose your motivation and your sense of zest for life. These are all kind of inflammation of the central nervous system, the brain, that creates mood changes, but also you get tremors and twitches like these hiccup attacks I was getting. I had no idea that hiccup attacks at bedtime was a sign that four hours earlier, I ate a pile of oxalates. (laughs) I was shocked to learn that as I did my research, like, oh, it's normal in literature that shows a hiccup as a neurotoxicity symptom. I had no idea. I had no idea either. But I presume not all hiccups are the same, right? Sometimes you hiccups occur for other reasons, right? Precisely. I mean, that's why you don't know about oxalates and oxalate toxicity, because all these effects are diverse and nonspecific to this particular cause. So the body has only so many ways to stop working well. Lots of things can interfere with the workings of the body. But principally, what does that are anything that causes a toxic effect on the cell or a nutrient deficiency. And oxalate is doing both. It's stealing minerals and electrolytes from cells. It's damaging cell membranes and causing a lot of oxidative stress and problems for cells. It is under the hood, you don't notice it so much. But there's newer research demonstrating that even after a modest spinach smoothie, only 40 minutes later, even though it takes like eight hours to fully have this oxalate getting into your body, only 40 minutes later, they're seeing in a huge proportion of the subjects, you know, the volunteers, severe damage to the circulating immune cells. How is that possible if it hasn't gone through your gut in 40 minutes? How's it getting into your bloodstream? It starts in the stomach, so it gets to your stomach in like 30 seconds, and then the stomach is very acidic environment, very low pH, so that helps to dissolve the oxalic acid and keep it very, what we call ionic, and that it just floats between the cells of the gut into the bloodstream. And so 20 minutes or so after a meal, it's already moving past the stomach, especially if it wasn't a lot of protein, because the stomach will hold it longer if it's a high-protein, high-fat meal, because that's what the stomach does for you protein digestion, then it moves on to the small intestine. Right. So 40 minutes, you've pretty much gone past that acidic moment, and they're not sure which percentage comes in from the stomach, but a great deal comes in from that first uh, moment in the intestinal tract. So, it's But it really doesn't peak for four hours. So even though we've only, mm, maybe we could guesstimate a quarter of the oxalate that's coming into your body is only there, probably less. Right. You know, 40 minutes, even then, that's enough to cause oxidative stress in your immune cells. So they start putting out pro-inflammatory chemicals that says, hey, hey, we're in trouble, we're wounded. And that makes them less able to defend you from infection. The other thing is that also what's happening in your stomach and intestines is that some of the oxalates you're eating are actually calcium oxalate crystals. And they're designed as sharp little pointy ground glass. It's like eating sandpaper. And some of that sandpaper is shaped like toothpicks. They're designed to be daggers and arrows to, for plant self-defense. And so they're, you're literally eating this, you know, ground up glass shreds that's quite harming to the cells and the digestive tract. And you can literally damage or injure what we call 
the barrier function of your digestive tract. So it's trying to protect you from infections and getting the wrong things in your body. But if you start stabbing your cells in your gut, you can end up with gut damage. Okay, so if the manifestation of this illness, even if it does manifest as something like a hiccup or a burp, how do we know whether we're suffering from this situation as opposed to inflammation caused by other sources, for example? Well, in a way, it doesn't even matter if it's the principal cause. If you're eating high oxalate food and you already have an inflammatory situation, you're just going to make it worse. Okay. I believe that it is a major prime cause because it's so common. I mean, you just mentioned how these foods are so popular in our diets. You're eating them all the time. We're all eating them all the time. So our general exposure level is pretty high. And the best way to really tell is to learn learn about which foods have the oxalates and start getting some kind of glasses, like oxalate glasses in your life. So you can tell when you just had a high oxalate meal or not, or if you've had a high oxalate week or day or not. And then you can maybe start to see patterns where you might go, you know, maybe this stuff is really dogging me. Okay. So are oxalates toxic for everyone or is it just certain people that would be affected like this? It's definitely certain people who get these multi-system breakdown illnesses where they can't find any answers or hope or help and they get autoimmune conditions and they they end up losing body parts like their gallbladder or colon or, you know, get into serious problems. I think that's a subtype okay. of this. And I think what we call normal aches and pains of life and what we call normal aging is probably also oxalate damage. So there's the degree to which it'll cut you down and how quickly it cuts you down as an individual. But like mercury and other toxins, we're all ultimately vulnerable to toxins like this. Okay, so if that's true, then what are some swaps that we can undertake to take out some of the oxalates from the diet? Presuming we want to go there. Yeah, it's definitely worth playing around with that. So for spinach and chard and bee greens, it's real easy. Everything else that's a green leaf is pretty much safe. All your lettuces, your arugula, your watercress, they're all nice and low oxalate. They're an easy switch. Instead of black beans and white beans, see if you can figure out how to prepare your own black-eyed peas because you usually don't find them out in the world. But yep. Peas, green peas, black-eyed peas, and chickpeas are all much lower than the beets. And white rice would be a good substitute for if you need a gluten-free grain. Calcium is really protective of this problem, so if you can tolerate cheese and dairy, I highly recommend including that in your daily diet. Instead of chia seeds, try pumpkin seeds. Instead of turmeric, try curcumin extract because that's been purified in a way where you don't get the oxalates anymore. You can have apples instead of the kiwi and blueberries instead of blackberries. So there's definitely plenty of foods left over. And I do recommend people reconsider our general fear of meat and protein and eggs and butter and old-fashioned human foods that have gotten bad rap. I think they're pretty important nutrient delivery systems. Like we need the nutrients in eggs and meat more than we realize, and we've overemphasized the idea that the fat and cholesterol in them are bad for us, which is a highly debatable concept. Okay, we have time for one last question, and that is, you know, some of what you're saying is quite surprising because a lot of those foods I think you've listed as having oxalates, most people consider to be very healthy. So what caused this shift in health wisdom? Well, people like me who are goody two-shoes and been eating the healthiest possible diet you can create are failing on this diet. And that's what happened to me. I crashed, my career crashed, my life crashed, I struggled being a healthy eater since forever. And once I finally got it through my head, finally could see this, it's very hard to notice this when you're eating these foods and they're harming you. Really, it's really hard to know unless you really think oxalates are a real thing. And I was never taught that. So it's taken a lot of personal 
blood, sweat, and tears to even be willing to consider this because I, in my head, I didn't see, you know, from my training, I would have never have suspected this. So it took lots of time in the library to dig up the fact that science is there, that we're ignoring it. And this is the nature of science. It's a human endeavor. This was a diagnosis. This dietary oxalate poisoning became a medical diagnosis in 1842 and remained so until about the late 1930s and then got dropped when we got interested in being able to measure disease with blood tests. This is not one you can measure with a blood test, so it got ignored. And now it's relegated as a kidney stone problem only, which isn't the case. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Christine Ibrahim, V Mystery, Dr. Stacey Irvine, D.C., and Sally Norton. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA, and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.